Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff Poteet, and I get to serve here on staff as one of our pastors. Uh, And oftentimes, I get to serve in our Crosspoint Center as the venue pastor there and get to encourage folks as they gather with us at 9, 15, 11. So I want to give a special shout out to you guys in the Crosspoint Center. Look forward to seeing you guys here in the near future. And for everybody that's online, thank you for continuing to tune in with us each and every week. It's a joy uh, to be able to have you gathering with us, even though it is virtually. Now, I've got a quick question for you guys this morning. And by show of hands, how many of you hate to lose things? How many of you hate to lose things? All right, most everybody. Now, I'm not talking, you know, there's different kinds of people when it comes to hating to lose stuff. There are some people who lose something and like, oh, that stinks. I'm gonna go buy another one. It's not really that big of a deal. But then you have people who when they lose things, they can't sleep. They can't eat. They search for hours on end, retracing every single step that they took. They, they get their friends and their family and their neighbors to come over and help them look for things that they have misplaced. Now, that's really kind of our family. That is, that's kind of who we are. We, if we lose something, we are going to take whatever measures necessary to find that thing. And several years ago, our family went to Kinston, North Carolina with, uh, with our family serve week here at Scotts Hill to serve there for a week. And we took our family Switch with us, our Nintendo Switch. We took it along for the ride. Uh, because we thought, you know, on the way, our kids can play. On the way back, they can play. And so we took that. And, and as we came home that next week, one of our kids said, do you guys know where the switch is? And I thought, oh, no. I bet we left that thing in Kinston. And if we left it there, there's no retrieving it. It is gone for good. So what we started to do is the, the regular routine. We asked everybody in kind of a family meeting, Does anybody remember playing the switch on the way home? One of our kids said, I remember playing the switch. So we thought to ourselves, all right, at least it made it back to Hampstead. It's either in our car or it's in our house, but we know that it is somewhere around here. So we begin to look week after week, month after month, we looked for this thing so intently, guys, that we decided to tear our house apart down to the concrete floors, removing kitchen cabinets and everything just to find this switch. And you guys are like, what? You did what? I'm just kidding about that part. We actually did take the floors up and the cabinets out, but it's because we had a water leak and we had to replace all those things. But the point of the story is that we had touched literally every single piece of furniture, every stitch of clothing underneath the floorboards of our house and still no switch. Dejected, disappointed, in despair, wondering what our life might have been like had we ever found (laughs) that switch. We decided to go on with our lives until one day, about a year later, we were sitting in the parking lot at one of our boys' baseball practices. Sitting there, and my wife reaches into the glove compartment or the side of our van, and she starts to scream. 
and our kids open the doors and they jump out. One of our kids thought that there was a snake in the car. And so just so you know, that has literally never happened in the history of our family, a snake being in the car. So we're like, what are you talking about? And she pulls out to our astonishment, our Nintendo Switch. It had been hidden under a little compartment in there and she found it totally unexpected, totally unanticipated. All the energy that we had expended over the course of that year, gone in a minute and the switch was found without an ounce of effort. As we come to Romans chapter 10, that is the message that Paul is trying to communicate with us. Now he's not talking about finding an electronic device. No, he's talking about finding something that's way more significant than that. He's talking about how someone can find or attain true righteousness. And for us, that term might be a little bit nebulous. What does that really mean? So let's just kind of get a picture of what does it mean to be truly righteous? A way that we can say this that could be helpful for us is this. How does someone know for certain that they have attained a right standing with God? How can someone know for sure that God has accepted them or that they are approved by him? This is the message that Paul is trying to communicate with us in chapter 10. Now, if you'll recall, we are kind of in the middle of a, of a short section from chapters nine to 11 in the book of Romans in our study in the book of Romans. Last week, we talked about God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, we're talking this week about man's responsibility and next week we'll see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility together as he's dealing with the nation of Israel, dealing with their past, dealing with their future, dealing with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Remember this chart that we had from last week that in chapter nine, we talk about God's sovereignty and history and salvation. In chapter 10, we're talking about man's responsibility and salvation. In chapter 11, sovereignty and responsibility in salvation. So today, as we look at chapter 10 together, I wanna go ahead and give you the bottom line of this message. And we're gonna see this over and over as we kind of walk through chapter 10. The bottom line for this message today is this. How a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. How a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. So if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter nine, verse 30. If you'll meet me there, we're gonna pray and then we are gonna jump into our study together. Romans chapter nine, verse 30 is where we will be, but let's pray and ask God to open our eyes and our ears this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here as your people to hear your word. We pray that you would speak to us clearly, convincingly, and convictingly so that we might grow in our walk with you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. amen. Now, as we begin our time in our study today, uh, we will see in chapter nine, verse 30, that Paul begins his argument with a question. He's done this over and over again, but we see this is the way that he launches into his argument about how a person can have righteousness with God. Notice the question that he asks. He says, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Based on everything that he just told us in chapter nine up to this point about God's work in people's life and, and in the reality that in this time, there is a conundrum that he's working through. The question that he's trying to answer in response to what he said is this, why is it that so many Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus? It seems like they are coming in droves, people who had not been following the Lord, not looking for him. And at the same time, in comparison, it seems like a very small number of 
Israelites are believing the gospel. And so what shall we say then to all of these things? And Paul begins us with a big truth that he wants us to understand even at the beginning of the message, that right standing with God comes only through faith in Christ. Right standing with God comes only through faith in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 30b, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. The Gentiles were not looking for God. Doubtless they probably have never even heard of the law of Moses. They were content worshiping their idols. Now they may not have been the most heinous in immorality, but they were not looking for the one true God. Yet when they heard the message of the gospel, when they heard what Christ had done, that he had died, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that life was found in him, rather than looking for some work to do, they believed. They trusted in his finished work because they realized that they had nothing else that they could rely on. They had no history that they could rely on. All that they had was the good news of the gospel. You probably know that kind of person. You may be that kind of person. If you look back in your yearbook, you might've been voted least likely to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, whenever you heard the message of the gospel, you believed, you trusted in him. You knew that you had nothing else to give, nothing to offer God, and you surrendered your life to Jesus. The only hope that you had was in his finished work. But the question then is, why did Israel not believe? Why did they not attain this same righteousness? Paul tells us that one of the reasons is this, that they pursued the wrong means in the wrong manner. Israel pursued the wrong means in the wrong manner. Notice what he says in verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Notice the pursuit that they were on. The pursuit wasn't righteousness. The pursuit was the law. They were pursuing perfect law keeping. I can achieve perfection, they thought, if I can just keep all the law. If I can just do everything that is set out for me in the law, then I can achieve a right standing with God. But we all know how that story goes, don't we? If you think of law keeping like a race, you know that the finish line is always a little bit out of your grasp. You know that you can never really do enough to finish keeping the law perfectly. There's always something that you missed, always some way that we failed. And that's what Paul is beginning to uncover for us as we read this together. But Paul also wants us to be reminded that the insufficiency wasn't in the law itself, but in the manner in which they pursued it. Notice what he says in verse 32. Why did they fail? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Rather than them looking beyond the law to its author and its purpose, understanding the utter impossibility of keeping the law and looking to God as their only hope of righteousness, they looked to the law as though it was really possible to provide themselves with righteousness by keeping the commandments. You see, what God wanted them to understand was if they embraced the law as God intended it would, it would lead them beyond themselves to him. They would look outside of themselves for a hope that was found only in him. 
But if they pursued their standing with God based on the works that they had, it would always lead them away from God and right back to themselves. It would lead them to themselves as their source and confidence in their salvation. Paul shares with us the outcome of this kind of pursuit. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, Paul wants us to understand that faith and self-effort are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. The message of the gospel declares that you don't have it in you to obey perfectly. You never have and you never will. But for the proud, for the self-willed person that says, yes, I do have it within me, this passage is saying that Christ, the gospel, is a despised excuse for why people fail. They just believe in Jesus because they can't do it on their own. I can do it on my own. But for those who realize that they are unable, that they acknowledge their inability, Christ is a glorious assurance of perfect and future success. He is the assurance of that. Those who believe in him will never be put to shame. They will never be cast away, which leads us back to our bottom line. How a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. As Paul continues, rather than criticizing deeply or harshly or unkindly, and rather than patting himself on the back and, and congratulating himself for what he's found, or even for Paul, after we just read through Romans chapter nine, just to say, well, it is what it is. That's just how things are going to be. You know, God's in control of everything. It's just how it is. No, Paul responds in a way that we might not expect. Notice what he says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul prays for them. You see, Paul knows that prayer is one means that God uses to accomplish his purposes. And this is not in contrast or there's no challenge in Paul's theology of sovereignty. He includes in this the responsibility that we have as God's people to pray for the salvation of lost people, of people that are not following Jesus. We, we pray because we long for all people to know the freedom that's found in Christ, the forgiveness that's found in Christ. Our desire is that all people would respond to Christ in faith and have a right relationship to God, which this moves Paul to the second reason why Israel and people have failed to attain a right standing with God. He says that their zeal was misapplied and their trust was misplaced. Their zeal was misapplied and their trust was misplaced. Notice what he says in verse two. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Jewish problem was not zeal. They had loads of that. If you stacked up an Israelite with any other world religion, they would outdo them in zeal any day of the week. It started with their laws. They had 619 laws to start with, but then they added laws on top of those laws. So they never even got close to breaking the laws that they had. Whenever you talk about zeal for the law, the Israelites had it. They were, they were not people that lacked zeal in any way. 
This flies in the face of what our culture teaches us, doesn't it? Then sincerity in religion is all that God really wants. He just wants us to be sincere about whatever it is that we're pursuing and that's going to be okay with God. Paul says, if ever there was a sincere person, a sincere religious person, it was a Jewish person, but their sincerity did not save them because it was misapplied. Notice what he says in verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Rather than following the trajectory of the law, what its purpose was, how should it lead me to God? They applied their zeal to create what I would term a startup righteousness. You know, it's kind of an out of the box, new concept that's going to allow us to accomplish what we want. In reality, that's what all world religions actually are. They're all startup religions, trying to find a way for man to work his way to God, to work his way into an acceptable place with God, rather than embrace what God has already clearly given us in his word. Not only was their zeal misapplied towards starting their own way of righteousness, their trust was misplaced in believing that their way was the right way. Notice what Paul says. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And this is huge, but it shouldn't be surprising because you guys, many of you are parents and you have had at some point in time that conversation with your two-year-old, haven't you? Whenever you, there was something that they were trying to accomplish and you said, let me help you with that. Let me show you the way. And they looked at you. They may have put their hands on their hips. They may have given you a smug smirk and with their little words said, I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. I don't need your input. The reality is they just established their own way and rejected yours. This is true for two-year-olds. This is true for 22-year-olds, 42-year-olds, 62-year-olds, 102-year-olds. We are people who are proud people. We are prone and inclined to believe that we have within ourselves what it takes to be acceptable to God. Paul addresses the futility of their zealous pursuit. He addresses the foolishness of their self-trust. His prayer is that they would know the fullness of what God has truly provided. And he shares it with them. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in one sense, Jesus is the goal of the law. He's the goal of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's the goal of the whole Old Testament. It all points to him as its end. He fulfills perfect righteousness in every way. He obeyed the law perfectly. But it also, in another sense, reminds us that those who trust in Christ seeks trying to earn their way to God. They realize or come to know because of God's work in their hearts and their lives that Christ is the end. He is their righteousness. He is the only way by which they have a right relationship with God and they cease trying to earn it on their own. You see, they realize that their pursuit of a law-based righteousness is ended, their startup pursuit ends and their grace-received pursuit of Christ begins. This is what Paul is reminding us of. And the question that he wants us as we read this to ask is this question. Who are you truly believing in? 
Who are you, the reader, truly believing in? Either it's God, specifically the righteousness that he has accomplished in Christ. Either you've put your whole hope in that or your confidence is in yourself. Those are the two options that you have. Either God and his work or myself and my abilities. And whenever we talk about believing, we're not just talking about mental assent, information in our brains. We're talking about what object, what person have you put your trust in to establish a right relationship with God? His point is that while Israel may have based their standing with God on an internal effort and ability, they missed righteousness. And at the same time, the Gentiles have responded to the message of salvation that is outside of themselves by faith and have attained righteousness. They have been called into fellowship with God, which reminds us again that how a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. Do we respond by embracing what Christ has done or do we reject him in favor of our own abilities? Not only is a right standing with God based on faith in Christ, a right standing with God, Paul tells us, is easily accessible and universally available. It's easily accessible through faith in Jesus Christ. Right standing with God is easily accessible through faith in Christ. Notice what he says, starting in verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here the apostle Paul is quoting from Leviticus and he's reminding the readers of what actual righteousness through the law requires. And that is this, 100% obedience. 100%, it's all or nothing. Either you obey the whole law fully or you die. The only way to life through the law is 100% obedience. And since he's already told them in Romans chapter three that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, He's reminding us that this is impossible for us to accomplish. It's futile for us to pursue this way, but he reminds them that God has provided a way that is closer than the breath that they are breathing. He says it this way, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the enemy would have us believe that righteousness, life, and hope are inaccessible to us unless we go and find them, unless we go and do something to bring them to ourselves, unless we figure out a way to accomplish them, to solve the mystery, to achieve a particular level of understanding, the enemy would say, that is just unachievable for you. It's too far for you. It's inaccessible for you. God says that salvation is not accomplished by your effort. We don't go to get Christ. No, we receive what God has already sent. We receive what God has already accomplished. And he wants us to remember that salvation is found in a message that we believe, not in a path that we achieve. It's a message that we receive by faith, not we achieve by pursuit. But we don't like that, do we? 
We don't like to be people that receive things. We want to achieve. We want to go and find. We want to be better than the rest. The reality is that believing is more radical than achieving. Because in believing, we have to humble ourselves and confess that somebody outside of ourselves is Lord, that somebody outside of ourselves is Savior, that we couldn't do it on our own, but this is not what we want to believe. I can show it to you from a study that I read about. It was a couple of years ago. They did a study of about 2,000 Americans and British people, and the question that they wanted to answer is this. Which of the following animals, if any, do you think you could beat in a fight if you were unarmed? If you did not have a weapon, which one of these animals do you think that you could defeat? Now, they did this between British and Americans, and you probably wouldn't be surprised to believe that the Americans on pretty much every category thought that they could outdo the British on which animals that they could beat. But we start with kind of the small ones, right? So about 70% of people thought that they could defeat a rat or a house cat, you know? They could beat those animals. We start to see a little bit of a challenge when we get to a goose, like 60% thought that they could beat a goose. And I mean, I'm not sure what kind of geese they're running around with, but I think that we could probably all take a goose, maybe. Yeah, I'm seeing some affirmation. Maybe not, I don't know. Then you start getting to see some drop-offs. Only 30% of people thought that they could beat an eagle in a hand-to-hand combat or hand-to-claw combat, however you want to go with that one. But what really gets to be interesting is when you get down here to these guys, you might be surprised that 10% of Americans said, give me one of these in a fight and I can take them. By a show of hands, how many of you thought if I brought a crocodile in here or a gorilla or an elephant or a lion or a grizzly bear, you could probably handle them hand to hand? Anybody? Nobody in here. Cross Point Center, I hope somebody in there is. I was hoping that somebody was gonna raise their hand because if you did, I was gonna say, everybody look to that person and if we have an invasion of elephants in Wilmington, you just find them and then you run the other way because they're gonna take the charge for all of us, right? They're gonna be the ones that take the charge. But the reality is, that we are good at overestimating our own abilities, aren't we? We are really good at overestimating our own abilities because the reality is once you get past like house cat, we're probably all running the other way, aren't we? We're not standing and fighting against any of these things. But it's not just, can you fight an animal? It's, are you the best student in your class? Oh yeah, far and away. Are you the best worker on the job? Oh 100%. Nobody's better than me. We all believe that we are better than we really are. So it happens in those kinds of things, but it happens even more so when we talk about spirituality. We think that we're capable. We may not be the best person in the world. Sure, nobody's perfect, but I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that lady. We overestimate our capabilities and our abilities. We don't like to think that we are needy people. We don't like to think that we are unable to accomplish. We like to think that if there's just some valiant effort that I can put forth, then I can definitely do it. But the gospel says to us, there's no valiant effort that you can do. There's no thing that you can accomplish to be right with God. All that is required is trust. All that is required is faith. 
in Jesus and what he has accomplished and surrendering our lives to him as Lord. We see Paul continue. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now this isn't like a two-step process. Like you do this, then you do this, then you're saved. No, he's trying to communicate the one single truth that we believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, that we have submitted our lives to him as Lord, that we no longer live as if we are the rulers of our own lives, that we have given over control to him. We believe what he said about himself. We believe in his work on our behalf. What Paul is saying is that this is easily accessible. It is right there. We just believe. But not only is that Our qualification is not our abilities, it's in belief. But we also notice that right standing with God is universally available through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how he writes this in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This message is for all people. Salvation is not based on ethnicity, background, education, religious pursuit or history or moral blamelessness. Paul reminds us that salvation is available to all because the only means that anyone is saved is through the sufficient work of Jesus. And it's only available by faith in him. What an immense amount of comfort that is for us today, that we are not cut off because we are not Jewish people, that we are not cut off because we are not Israelites, that we can be included into God's family because the only way in is through the means that God has provided, which is Jesus. There is no quest that you have to seek for enlightenment. There's no way that you have to work towards God. The message of the gospel has come to you. And the message is this, put your trust in him. Surrender your life to him. Call out to mercy. Call out to him for mercy and receive the gift of salvation that he provides today. Remember again, our bottom line is this, how a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. Now it's important for us to apply this bottom line personally. How have I responded to Jesus? What am I putting my hope and trust in? Is this a message that I have believed and surrendered my life to, but it's not just a message that's for us here today. It's not just a message that says salvation is available for middle-class Americans in Wilmington, North Carolina. No, we're reminded it's the only way for anyone in the world to be saved, regardless of where they are in the world. This is the only way that God has provided for people to have a right standing with him, which leads us to Paul's next point. We must Proclaim the good news of Jesus for others to be saved. We must proclaim the good news of Jesus for others to be saved. As we continue through chapter 10, the apostle Paul is gonna give us kind of a a step approach of what it looks like for someone to hear the good news of the gospel. He outlines the steps for someone to call on the name of the Lord. And he does this by asking a series of rhetorical questions that emphasize the conditions that need to be met for someone to hear and be saved. Notice what he says, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are they gonna call on Jesus? How are people, how did we come to know about Jesus? It was because somebody proclaimed him to us. It's because somebody shared him with us. It's because somebody told us about him. It may be easier for us, I think that might be helpful for us to, to do what John Stott encourages us to do. And that is to start at the end and work our way backwards by taking the verbs that Paul uses and helping us understand the process that God uses to accomplish somebody hearing the gospel. Here's what John Stott says in reverse order. He says, Christ sends heralds, heralds preach, people hear, hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. Another way to say this, unless people are sent, the gospel of Christ will not be proclaimed. Unless the gospel is proclaimed, people will not hear the gospel. Unless people hear the gospel, they will never believe the gospel. Unless people believe the gospel, they will not call on the Lord. And if people do not call on the Lord, they will not be saved. We may acknowledge this truth. We may say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. But I want you to just, for a moment, I want us to just feel the gravity of this truth whenever it comes to the end of that passage. Paul quotes Isaiah 52, seven. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now for us, that might be kind of like, I don't really understand why he's saying that. You know, we don't think about this in our context so much because we all have on shoes, right? Or we may spend a lot of money to make sure that our feet are beautiful. Right? We might just do that on our own. But the reality is that for somebody in ancient Near Eastern times or in hearing this, Feet are not something that they would think were great. In fact, they're basically the most disgusting part of a person. Whenever you think about the things that people had to walk through in the first century, animals in the, in the, in the roads, no public plumbing. They just have to walk through all this stuff. Their feet are absolutely disgusting. In today's times, if someone sits towards you in, ancient, in Near Eastern places with their soles of their feet pointing towards you, it is an insult to be received. But imagine for just a moment, if you were in a slave camp, let's say that you're in a valley of some sorts and you are in a, a camp and you are a slave and there's no way for you to get out. There's no power that you can exert to overcome the ones that have captured you. You are, you are stuck, you and your family and your friends all there unable to escape until one day, you look up on the rim of the mountain and up there you see a group of people and they're saying something, but you're not exactly sure what they're saying until you begin to hear it a little bit more clearly. And they say to you, our king has conquered your enemies. You are no longer bound to live under their rule. We are setting you free. Even the most disgusting thing about that person would be the most beautiful sight in your eyes, not because of who they are, but because of the message that they brought. This is the same context that Isaiah is communicating to in Isaiah 52, seven. He is talking about the messengers who are bringing the message to the Israelites that were in Babylonian captivity, that your captivity 
is over because God reigns supreme. You are free from their captivity because God has set you free. The herald is the one who is sent by the king to declare the message of freedom. Here's the gravity. 1.7 billion. Now I don't do a lot with numbers because people give numbers for their own reasons, right? I'm gonna do a conservative number here. 1.7 billion people. That's the number of people that today have no access to this message. Not that they haven't believed this message, which many of us have heard the message, many of the people we know. It's not that they haven't believed it. It's they have nobody to tell them. They have no access to the gospel message. Another way to say this, if they were to die today, they would go into eternity having never had access to the good news of what Jesus has done. But God has called us. The king of the universe who has conquered sin and death and every enemy that faces us calls us and tells us, you can take the message of freedom to them. You have the message, take the message. You don't have to live in slavery to sin and idolatry. Jesus has conquered it. You don't have to try and work your way to God. Jesus has accomplished all that you need. And the only way that those 1.7 billion people or your neighbor will ever know that there is hope for them is if we herald the news of salvation that is full and free and found in Jesus. And I don't know that if it's ignorance of that truth, whether it's apathy toward our neighbor or lovelessness or unbelief, but there are billions of people today who have never heard. It's not that they haven't believed, they have never heard and we have news for them. Sin, death, defeated, life available. Come, believe in Jesus. Truth is, for them and for us, how a person responds to Jesus always determines their standing with God. And as Paul moves to the end of this passage, we are reminded again why Israel didn't believe. As he goes to chapter, uh, to verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not all heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you a jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's reminding them and Israel and all of us that it is his work of bringing the message to people, but people are responsible to believe. People are responsible to believe. And at the end of the day, the accountability is on those who hear. And today, though this passage is teaching us how Israel responded and priming the pump for the next chapter and answering more questions from the apostle Paul's detractors, Paul is talking to each one of us today. He's saying, God is holding out his hands to you. 
He's holding them out to you. Will you believe? Will you reject your own way of trying to make it to God on your own? Will you receive the simple message of the gospel that Jesus died for you, that he rose on the third day and salvation is available by trusting him? You may be here today and and you may think, well, my standing with God is based on the fact that I went to church for a long time. I read my Bible a whole lot. I've prayed many, many times. I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. And while all those things may make you acceptable to our society, not a single one of them or every one of them makes you acceptable to God. While that might make you a little bit nervous, like, oh, well, that makes all those things that I did unimportant. In light of eternity, what you did with Jesus is the most important thing. And the question today is, will you trust in him? Will you believe in him? For those of you here and your believers, we can fall into a works-based mentality and forget that Jesus is all we need. So the reminder for us is to continue to go back to the truth of the gospel as our only source of hope, as our only standing with God. We obey because we love God and what he's done, not so that God will love us. He has already demonstrated that in the person and work of Jesus. So he can walk full and free in his word. It also is a challenge for us today who are believers to ask the question, will I take the step of sharing the message of the gospel with those who are not believing, who don't trust in Jesus because their only hope is to believe in him. And we've been given the message of hope. Maybe that is challenging you to take the next step across the road, maybe across the aisleway at your work. Maybe for somebody here today, you hear that number and God stirs in you a desire to say, somebody's gotta go. Maybe I can be that person. We'd love to talk with you about how you could get started on that trajectory to go and use your gifts to be on mission with God in the world around us. God's call to us is to hear, believe, and go because the reality is this, how a person responds to Jesus determines their standing with God. This morning, as we have gathered here, we have the opportunity to pray for some who have taken that step today. For some who are on mission and are on the field, taking the good news of the gospel to one of our, and one of our strategic partners in Belize. We have a group of folks that left out this past Friday. I'm gonna throw their picture up on the screen. This is our team that just went out to Belize. They are going into villages of people who do not know the gospel. They're sharing the good news of the gospel with them. Uh, they are teaching them about Jesus from his word and calling them to believe in the one uh, who provides salvation. So this morning, as we are here, we're gonna pray for them. We're gonna pray that God would continue to embolden them in their mission. We're also gonna pray for those that hear the message because we know that faith comes by hearing. And so we're gonna pray that God would open their ears and they would believe the truth of the gospel and be transformed for eternity. So would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to gather and to study your word. Lord, we pray for our team that's in Belize today. We thank you for their willingness to take that step of faith, to say, I'll go and share the message of the gospel because how will they hear unless someone is sent? Lord, you have sent them to go and to share. So we pray that you would strengthen them. 
We pray that you would encourage them. We pray that you would help their team be unified in the work that they're doing. We pray that you would guard them from sickness or from injury. We pray that you would help them to be able to focus their attention on sharing the message of the gospel. Bring to remembrance the words that they have studied so that they can share accurately and with those that they come in contact with. Lord, we pray for those that hear today. We pray that as they hear the message of the gospel, that your spirit would apply it to their hearts. Help them to see that they do not have the resources within themselves to make it to you. Many of them have tried and tried and tried only to fail. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that you have accomplished all that they need in Christ. They look to him for salvation, that they cast themselves upon your mercy. Lord, we know from your word that you will receive them because of what Christ has done, not because of what they did. So we pray even now that you will bring about a great harvest in those who hear the message of the gospel to belief so that as we move towards eternity, this will be a starting point for these to see them around the throne of God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation worshiping our great savior together. We thank you for this day. Pray for those that are in Belize. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.